Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Trish Muganthan. Trish is a pediatrician who works as a neonatal and pediatric transport consultant in the Yorkshire and Humber regions of the United Kingdom. She's an expert in pediatric retrieval medicine. Now, she'll explain more what that means during the conversation, but basically she helps run a multidisciplinary team of experts who travel from a home base, help stabilize a sick child, and then bring that child back to the base for definitive care. Doing this well is both complex and complicated, and we spend most of the conversation exploring the problem sets that Trish and her team are routinely working with. Along the way, we dig into things like the interplay between local knowledge and elite expertise, how bi-directional learning makes for effective smash teams, and the key role that kindness plays in elite-level multidisciplinary medical resuscitation. So, you know, just a few small things here and there. Before we get started with these not-at-all small things, a quick reminder. If you want to join individuals and teams around the world who are working to perform better during times of crisis and emergency, there are so many ways to get involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to get started is to try our free crisis skills test, which you can find at emergencymind.com. All right, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode with Dr. Trish Muganthan. I hope you enjoy. All right, Trish, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am delighted to have you here. We had this awesome rambling conversation in Scotland at the retrieval conference over some food that I won't describe. It wasn't, anyway, we're not going to go there. But in any case, I'm happy to have you here on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to this. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It was a a really long rambling conversation, wasn't it? Um, (laughs) And the first time I met you as well, like I think I met you the day before when you Mm -hmm. gave the keynote speech, but I really liked what you said. And I'm usually not the kind of person that comes up to people and kind of starts chatting with them. I'm a bit of an awkward turtle. So (laughs) it was really nice chatting with you and sorry if I failed to kind of describe the food appropriately. It's really hard. (laughs) It's really, it's really bad. Just for the record, that was it was, it was, cutting, it was really bad. Yeah, but there's bonding no. over there's bonding over shared suffering. So I, I think that's what that's what got us talking about you know medicine and and yeah. uh, performance and everything else. So I'm really psyched for this. I'm hoping we're going to steer this conversation towards a variety of topics around training for high stress moments, around intersecting with groups who maybe have different training stacks and different skill sets. I think there's a lot of interesting ground to cover here. But before we really dive in, can you give everybody just like a two-second overview of who you are, what your job is, and, and sort of high level what's going on here? Okay, so I'm a, Cliff notes is that I'm a pediatric and neonatal transport consultant I'm working in a specific region in the UK. So I work in the Yorkshire and Humber region. What that means is I kind of oversee the transport and logistics side of um, transporting babies and children across the region, my region. That's yeah. basically it. And what are some of the reasons why, we're, we're just going to lay some solid foundation here, but what are some of the reasons why kids and neonates would need to be transported within a region like that? So it's essentially like when you talk about why they need transfers, it, when you think about babies, it's that they're not born in the right place. And when I say that, it's the ideal situation, if you're, let's say you're a preterm baby, is to be born in the, the best hospital for you, to give you the best chance of life. But that's not necessarily the case, that it, it doesn't always happen. 
because we cover a large geographical distance. Mm-hmm. So if you're preterm, you might be born in a small little district general hospital and need transferring after you're born. Most of the time, we also, like my team, we facilitate bed location for the mums in utero because the, to be honest, the best times for babies to be transferred is while they're still in their mums. Because that's the, the most effective transport mechanism, transport chamber for children. When we talk about transfer, we talk about babies or, or children needing pediatric intensive care units. And because of how staffs finite these resources, there are only certain hospitals in the region, in the country that kind of deliver intensive care. So what happens is if your child comes in to your local hospital and needs specialist input like, or is very sick and needs intubating, ventilating, transfer to uh, intensive care, then that's where my team comes in. We come in like a mobile intensive care situation, stabilized with the aim of transferring them to the nearest intensive care that they can get to. And then the flip side of things, we also bring babies and children closer back to home. So if they're born in hospitals that are a bit further away than they should be, because they need to be in special centers, then we kind of facilitate the transfer of them closer to home. Because hmm. you don't want to be like, when you're preterm in particular, if you're born in 23, 24, 25 weeks, you've got a long time before you can actually go home. And if you're living an hour, an hour and a half, two hours away, it's not feasible for your family life for um, the entire process if you're staying two hours away. So we're trying to bring these patients closer to home. So first off, I love the phrase, you know, mom is the ideal transport chamber. That's like, that's amazing. So what we're what we're looking at here is a situation where we have a, a sophisticated elite level resource, uh, say a NICU or a PICU where you have specialty care that's really not available in other areas. And there are some approximations of it in other areas, right? So like anywhere where you have a an ER, you can intubate and ventilate a exactly. baby. Assuming you have the, actually the, the, not just the personnel, but the technical, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, equipment, right? So when I was working yeah. in Haiti, for example, we didn't have, one case, we didn't have a, a ventilator that could produce breaths small enough for a neonatal infant. So if you have mm-hmm. the right, like, but in most cases, what we're talking about is there's some analogs everywhere you are, but there's some centers of excellence that have these elite level cares. And you have, in some sense, a geospatial supply demand mismatch in terms of who needs the care and who has the care and the resource. Um, but it's also expertise. So we talk about babies. Like, like you said, if a child or a baby came into the ER and needed intubating and ventilating, that's the easier part, like managing the acute side of things. But then what happens after that? Like, and We're expecting people who don't deal with children or babies all the time, like, when to manage these patients and they can it's not something they're entirely comfortable with so they may not have the knowledge of how to deal with the physiology in itself it's things that are putting them out of their comfort zones and it's just the way we are trained in the UK and, and it's kind of how uh, it leads that there is a specialization of knowledge uh, of training so that like say if you're a preterm baby all hospitals should be able to manage the initial stabilization of a preterm baby, but then what happens after that? If you're going to be there for 15 weeks, 16, 20, if you're born that preterm, it's a long call game. 
And the first few hours of life is you, you can manage, but then what happens after that? There are things that require long-term intensive care or high dependency care management that these smaller hospitals may not be able to provide. So it's just us getting these patients to the best place that they can now. We also do the stabilization aspect. So we bring in a level of expertise that we are familiar with. My team is kind of unique in some aspects because we go out for neonates and pediatric patients. So not all teams in the United Kingdom at the very least have a, a, a solid, uh, have the same team going out for all patients. They might have like an umbrella team that has a neonatal or pediatric aspect to it. And it's trying to make sure that we as a group of individuals have the appropriate amount of training to manage both groups of patients effectively so they can get to the best place that they that can manage them. And so if you're listening to this and you're not in the medical world, I want to make one thing explicit, which is that like there's this joke that kids are not just small <laughs> adults when it comes to medicine, right? Because like the physiology and in some cases, even the anatomy of a child is very different than that of an adult. And especially when you're getting into the neonatal range, especially premature neonatal, the way those humans behave is not the way that most other humans behave. So you have to have a different set of technical knowledge and a different set of technical skills in order to really provide the highest level of care for neonates. So you're approaching this problem set where there's a couple of threads that we have, right? So you need to be able to do multiple high-level medical tasks across a variety of different types of patients. And you need to be able to do that not just at your home institution where you are familiar with the team and the staff and the equipment, but you need to be able to do it in a variety of different hospitals, stabilize that patient, and transport them in various directions to get them to the longer-term care they need. So this has features including somewhat unpredictability of timing, right? Maybe you get some warning when uh, somebody who's high risk is about to give birth. Maybe you don't. It mm -hmm. has the feature of uncertain environment, which is that you're going to a place that's not yours to do an operation and bring somebody back. And it has the features of multidimensionality, which is that you have multiple tasks that you have to be really, really good at that are life and death importance. In a way, it also has liminality, which is that once you're out there, like you have to stabilize this child and bring them back. There's not really the option of showing up, being like, ah, sorry, and then disappearing back to your space. Like once you get started, you really can't stop. Yes, to a certain extent, it is exactly what you're saying. I've been to many different hospitals, many different neonatal units, many different emergency departments or pediatric wards. They're not the same. They might use different pieces of equipment and the staff are trained slightly differently. They're, and uh, the commonality, particularly in the pediatric side of things, is what I find is that people who work with adults are very nervous when it comes to children. It's a scary space for people. And I get that. So for us to turn up, we want to be able to provide the best care for the patient with the help of the team that is present now. The caveat is that there is only so much we can do as a team. So I have unfortunately been to situations where I've had to go there to, as kind of a last ditch rescue option and kind of say, I've tried my best here and this is all I can do. And I'm really sorry. And that's not an easy thing to say. For sure. But it's all we can do, unfortunately. Well, those of us that have, you know, are part of the, uh, unfortunate club of losing a child as a patient is uh 
is very, very heavy and it stays with you even even when you are experienced with having patients pass mm-hmm. and it's a different thing. It's hard. It's horrendous. And I remember one of my trainers in the past telling me that like the if you reach a point where you stop being upset about the death of a child or the child being unwell, then you really shouldn't be doing this job anymore. And that's something that's kind of stuck with me till now. I mean, when you're trying to cope with things, you compartmentalize best that you can. Um, and for me, I've only looked after pediatric and neonatal patients for the last 10 years or so. Like I haven't like, I stopped looking after adults quite a while ago. So it's not the same, I think. And I've always felt like it's been a hard thing to get over. Um, and I don't know how it, like, I'm sure it's the same with you, like whether it's different when someone older passes, but uh, it, for me, it's always been difficult. Yeah. One of my scribes asked me many years ago, what it's like, like, do you ever get used to losing a patient? And I don't know, I was feeling very philosophical that day for some reason when they asked me this and my answer, which is, which has surprised me then in how accurately it reflects my feelings and I've stuck with for years is that it it always tears the same size hole in you. You just realize after a period of time that you're a much bigger piece of fabric than you thought you were when you started. And that, yeah, right. I'm like, I'm I'm surprised at myself for coming up with that on the spot. That's really, that's a really nice way of putting it like a horrible situation, but you as an individual have grown and are growing to be able to cope with it. I think it captures the reality that you said you you don't lose the sense of humanity about, you know, feeling what you're going to feel when this happens, but you do also realize that showing back up the next day and taking care of the next person is also important and that there's, Mm -hmm. you know, in a sense that's, that honors the patient that passed, even though you weren't necessarily able to help them. There's a lot in there to which I don't think there are perfect answers. And I think that wrestling with that is part of the one of the gifts of of working in emergency care is that you get to go up to bat against these scenarios that that mm-hmm. happen and you get to you know hopefully what's that Seneca quote like a a gem is polished through friction and so is a human mm-hmm. polished through their trials like i think yeah. that's on the days when it feels good at least that's what that's what it, like whenever like these situations happen these events happen you do learn from them mm-hmm. there's always something you can take back about what's happened, how you felt about the situation, how you're coping and finding better coping strategies about how you manage that. Like I, I saw this thing on Twitter a few weeks ago and it's a, like a pediatric intensivist that I follow. And he said like, um, I think it was along the lines that uh, he had a bit of a, like a run of bad cases and he thought he was coping fine until he went home and kind of started crying when something went on on TV. Like, and I thought like, okay, I've, I've, I've done that. Like when I've had bad runs and I've been fine. And then a water aid commercial comes on and I look at these little children and I'm like, okay, this is making me feel really, really sad. And how well am I coping? Is this like the cumulative effect of what I've experienced? And then over time, you kind of just kind of deal with it. But that's also why, and maybe because I'm soft-hearted or whatever, like I feel like I need to check in on the people around me. Like when I hear about, my colleagues going through bad runs and we don't, it doesn't always happen. It's not a, it's still an uncommon occurrence for us to attend to a child death or a post-cardiac arrest or go there and have to withdraw. These are all, as you said, halo occurrences. 
Right. But it's still hard. And there is a like a cumulative effect on our psyche about how we deal with it. And if it happens once in a while, okay, you have a bit of a, a lull and you have a bit of a time to kind of reflect on how you manage it and how you kind of move on and how you learn from it. But then when it hits you one after the other, which sometimes it can happen because of just probability or, or just a bad mm-hmm. run of luck, um, which I do believe in that, uh, you just have to kind of figure out better coping strategies. And I try to kind of check in on my colleagues to make sure they are managing just if, if they need a sounding board and someone to talk to, then that's kind of what I offer to others as well, because they've done the same for me. I think it's interesting too, that the way you're describing that it's like a delay and then you see something else that sort of triggers you. Because I think that most of us that work in these environments have learned very early to buffer, to have this buffer, right? Like you don't, you don't necessarily feel a lot when you're in the middle of the room because- mm-hmm what the patient and their family needs from you is not necessarily empathy. It's not, they don't need the mirror of their feeling in you. They need mm-hmm. compassion. They need you to be able to care for them and with them in that, in that crisis mm-hmm. without necessarily showing that emotion. But I think that one interesting result of that is that it can be very confusing for the people that are around us that don't live in that world, right? Because they'll see us go through things that seem horrific and you know they're like, how are you doing? And you're like, I don't know, fine. But then a day later, you're like, ah, oh, I'm really upset. I'm really sad. I'm really, I'm having now yeah, all yeah. of these emotions come out in a way that's like this strange sort of pattern, unless you're used to doing yeah. that. I think that can be very confusing for folks. I think it's like a level of compartmentalizing. Yeah. Because for me, like, I know I have to go for the next thing that comes out. Like, mm-hmm. and I can't sure. carry, like, exactly what you said. I can't carry what I'm going through now to the next one because that will impact my performance and, how I manage the next patient. And it's not something I want to exactly what you said about doing a disservice to them. So I kind of put it in a little box and wrap it up and to be dealt with at a later time. And it just depends on when the later date is, isn't it? But you have to deal with it just as a... Yeah, you have to to deal with it. You you have to deal with it or not. There's no way out. (laughs) It explodes in your face. (laughs) No way out, but through. But let's... Okay, so let's regroup this very slightly because I think this is an incredibly deep and rich thing. And I want to turn us back just a little bit. So one of the features of the problem set that you're working on that I'm super fascinated by is the ability of your team to drop into a space that's not yours, in quotes, and still assist, run the show, provide support, provide decision-making, perform under pressure, and you're interfacing with an environment and a, a set of kit, a set of equipment that's not yours. You're also interfacing with a team that is maybe scared or at the limits of their capacity or whatever it is. And that interface is so interesting. That's a parallel problem that a lot of listeners to this podcast face, whether they're in emergency medicine and they're going up to a floor to run a code, they're doing a swarm team that's assembling on an objective they are in the military going to work with other groups that aren't theirs on a particular objective, whatever it is. I think this is a really fascinating problem set. Let's press on this for a little bit. So can you take me through what an average one feels like, right? So you get the call and then what happens? I get the call. It's either pediatric pediatrics or neonates um, and it's usually district general asking for help 
and they might be in the form of advice. So they've just got a sick patient, they want a bit of advice, which I can provide, or I can kind of loop in pediatric intensivists or neonatal intensive care, the neonatologist to kind of help facilitate that. Or it's more of a, we need some help now, can you come and help us? And that's the point where I kind of have to decide who I'm sending out for that particular case. I don't tend to go out for all emergencies because I have a, a very highly skilled group of people that uh, work in the same team as me. So my, my registrars and my nurse practitioners and my nurses are all fabulous people who are trained to kind of manage situations like this. And so when we decide who goes out, they're the ones first out the door. In some instances uh, where we know that the child's going to be, baby's going to be really sick, then that's when my myself or one of my consultant colleagues as a senior level of support would come out with the team and we'd kind of assess the patient as they get there. So we'd give some degree of advice before we even leave and then we'd go out to see them. From a systems point of view, it helps that we have kit that we are familiar. We bring our own kit. We do not travel light at all. We have most of the things we will need with us already. We have our own ventilators. We have our own trolleys or incubators that, that we bring with us. So that side of things is fine. Like even things, simple things like infusion pumps are different across different hospitals here. So there's a lack of standardization of what anyone uses from a equipment points of view. So once we get there, we kind of assess where the patient is and what they need. And how much stabilization they actually need. So is it something that actually the local team have done really well because it's kind of a straightforward 24, 25 weeker who just needs to go to a tertiary hospital and they've done a fantastic job. They've got lines in, everything's fantastic. All we need to do is switch things over to our own system and move the patient across and that's it. Or if it's more complicated, we might need to do things like insert lines and get infusions running like um yeah you know, like when i say lines i mean central lines and True. and uh start things like nitric oxide and specific interventions that may benefit the patient to see whether that will help so sometimes stabilization can be relatively quick under an hour sometimes it can take a lot longer than that i've stayed at the patient's bedside for eight hours mm. because i couldn't move them until ECMO came so it just kind of depends on how sick they are. And in that moment, so your team shows up, you know, you have a graded response to the request. You've decided to commit resources. You have multiple different resource packages you can deploy. You've decided to deploy a particular package. The package arrives with your own kit, your personnel. Mm -hmm. I assume there's what, two or three people in your an average so team? An average team would have like a, a medic, which uh -huh. could be... Uh, a registrar, which is a, a doctor in training. Uh, a uh, resident in the US, yep. Uh, like a, a resident in the US, a nurse practitioner was the equivalent uh -huh. of, of that, or, or a consultant, Okay. Or plus a consultant. So I could just be an addition to the team as well. Um, we've got a nurse, a trained transport nurse, as well as one of our paramedic drivers, like a, it's a crew okay. members, as opposed to a paramedic, but a crew member who's going to drive us to the destination and uh -huh. help us with our loading and off loading and unloading and getting kit. Everyone's kind of got their own specific role in the team uh -huh. and it's really invaluable what everyone does. So at least three people, sometimes four. Yeah. 
Okay. There's a whole thread we're going to hit in a second, which is how do you train these groups to operate together and what does that look like? I'm going to ignore that for a second. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to it. Okay. So your team arrives, you've decided to deploy this particular resource package, which is probably some linear function of like what's available, what else is going on, who's cycled up and down, et cetera. But you've deployed this resource package that your mm -hmm. team arrives. That moment where your team gets there the interface between your team and the team on the ground is really fascinating to mm -hmm. me because this is a problem that we face across different domains. Who has jurisdiction? Who takes command? How do you determine who's running the show? How do you communicate with each other? Are there standardized ways of communication or fragmented mm -hmm. ways of communication? What happens to those standard operating procedures when high pressure situations evolve? If the patient decompensates in that moment, you know, and this is a sister problem to paramedics taking somebody from the field and delivering them to an ER. And in that moment, that transition is quite complicated or an ER team leaving the emergency department to assist with an unstable patient on the floor when it's a little dicey about who's doing mm -hmm. what and where. I don't think we have great answers to this in our domain. And I'm really curious what you guys do. Can you talk me through that moment? So I think in the majority of cases, people are glad to see us. Because sure. you've got a patient that is something that they're finding difficult to manage and going to package them and take them away from the situation that they're in. So a lot of the cases, they are at least receptive to us. Although it does change, and you know this, like if there is staffing shortages or if it's already a stressed environment, the situations about hierarchy may come across. But again, I think in the majority of cases, people are, are quite happy for us to be there. What we tried to do is in the first instance, if possible, we'd get some form of handover to find out how the patient is and what the current status is. In the majority of times, that can go rather smoothly. If the patient is obviously unwell and needs immediate stabilization, then the team would crack on and just get to the patient. Now, hierarchy-wise, you mentioned about like who takes over. Like To be honest, when I, I would be the one taking over. Mm. But it's kind of a give and take, isn't it? Like... It depends on what you're bringing to the table and what the circumstances are. It's a really difficult thing, isn't it? Like trying to make sure that we're all communicating effectively mm -hmm. and kind of managing things to the best that we can. So for the benefit of the patient, I've seen it when it works well. I've seen it when it hasn't worked well. I think that kindness and being kind but firm in what you're saying actually works really well because I don't think rudeness has a place in anything we do um, and it doesn't bring out the best in people. So I try to be friendlier with the people and try to get names of the people who are the ones kind of dealing with me immediately, whether it be the pediatric nurse or the anesthetist that I try to find out. So if I ever needed them to do something, I could be like give a directed command so I'd get like a closed loop feedback um, of the response, but it's really hard. It's it's really hard and this doesn't always work. Sometimes you kind of just have to be quite firm with the situation because especially if it sometimes feels like you're walking into a war zone, like you're in a, like a, a bomb's just gone off. Everything's a mess and you've got this patient sure. there. Like, how do you manage it? I am so fascinated by this in part because I have been on in some sense, both sides of this equation, right? Like I've worked in really small mm -hmm. places where I have tried to stabilize a patient and exhausted the resources of that space and have been so grateful for the critical care transport mm -hmm. team coming in to help me get yeah. them to another place. 
I've also been the person that runs up to a you know an unstable quasi cardiac arrest patient on the floor where I'm bringing a bag of gear with me and mm-hmm. I am the the in quotes mini transport team in that case right and so yeah. it's really complicated and and it's worth pushing on I love the idea of kindness but firmness in there as a, as a standard operating like default position let me start with this is there a standard answer like when you are called into a space at the end of the day is there a default answer of who's in charge or is it actually a negotiation every time? To some extent, I think it's like we are coming in. So once we've done the handover process, uh-huh. then we're the ones who are in charge of, of the station. That's the default way it works. Okay. Obviously, when it gets it gets stickier, if there are more senior people involved, sure. And the person we send out is junior, then it sure. gets a bit stickier for the person we send out. For example, as in I walked into a situation where there were six of us, six consultants in the room and trying to find out like who was leading. I was quite firm with who, where I stood in this <laughs> position. There is a level of negotiation involved because you respect what the other person has to bring. Like I will respect what the anesthetist or the surgeon has to bring to the table because that's their expertise. So this is my domain, like transporting the patient would be my domain. So there is a level of negotiation in those kind of circumstances. Yeah. The, part of the reason I asked that is that one of the things we've found as we study swarm teams, right? These teams that sort of assemble on an objective to solve a problem. So for example, a code blue team in the hospital where okay. the individuals might not have worked together before. So just to set up this this structure. So the opposite of a swarm team in some sense is like a professional basketball team. They're selected to train okay. together, okay. they practice together, they play together, they go to barbecues at each other's houses, they, you know, they do this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. A swarm team is a group that might not have ever worked together before. They're summoned from their normal life to converge on a problem set, solve a problem, and then usually they dissipate back when that solution's gone. So they don't have the the stickiness, the interstitial mm-hmm. tissue of most teams, stuff like that. So uh, you talked about this in your in one of your talks, actually. Mm-hmm. The concept's really interesting because you can't train a swarm team or like a crash team as well as you can train a basketball team because there's so many variables in the very basic of the, the individuals involved. So is your what you're trying to say is like when we come in to deal with the situation, we have our own team, they've got their own team. Is that the difficulties? What exists for you all? What structure do you walk into? And what of it do you have to negotiate every time? There are structures in place. And to be honest, like uh, walking into this particular role, the, the structures were already in place. Like as a transport team, our roles are very well defined. Like we will go and we will bring out expertise to you. Okay. And once the patient's in front of us, we can make a decision of what to do next. But our role is for the stabilization and transfer. We wouldn't necessarily resuscitate a patient that is in need of basic life support and things like that mm-hmm. because not to say that we wouldn't do that if our patient ended up needing it, but you get what I mean, right? We wouldn't go into a situation if the local team hasn't kind of managed the initial stages, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Then there are standard operating procedures and how to manage things like how, what do we do if we transfer a patient to theaters? So we take a patient from one place to bring them to like Toshi neonatal unit to bring them to theater because the patient needs surgery in a different hospital. That we have procedures for that that can help us kind of manage the situation. But in generally, I think in, you need to respect the expertise of the other people in the room. And 
Yeah, I'm still finding this. The question itself is a bit of a tricky one for me to answer because I'm trying to get my head around what yeah. you're trying to ask. Um, because I just kind of, we, we know what our roles are. Like I turn sure. up and this is where I'm going now. Like I'm taking over in this sense because I've, I've come in to deal with this. I'm not stepping yeah. on your toes. I respect that you've done this this far. I'll work collaboratively with you, particularly if you, like if I'm talking to a consultant or a registrar who's already spoken to the parents because mm-hmm. they have the relationship in the team, the local team have relationships with the parents that are pre-existing. And it's not like I have gone in and kind of started afresh and kind of delivered the bad news or whatever, but they're the ones who've got a relationship already. So I've always, I will always, bring them in with me like I don't want to be the the first time that you see my face is for me to tell you bad news like I, I want you to have like at least a, some form of familiarity with the person if, with you and also they're really helpful in getting like understanding the systems in place in their hospital if that makes sense so like if sure. I have a patient that's not behaving how I want them to be and they need an echo I can get someone to facilitate that and it's their knowledge of the local system which is useful for that. And it's something that I can't, like, I'm not going to remember how to do this for every single hospital. Like I will over time. Sure. But it's a lot of places to kind of re- remember the minutiae of the, the details. Does that make sense? Or is that no, a it really, no, it, it really does. Because you're talking about what it is like to bring expertise, but respect local knowledge at the same time. Yeah. And how to build those relationships over time between the two the two facilities. And it's hard to disentangle this. That's part of why I'm asking this tough question, because it's, it's a confusing interface between different things. But let me ask it a slightly different way and see if it gets us to a different position. Let's say that you had to create a brand new relationship between a transport team and a hospital. A new hospital opens up. They've never needed transport before. They're going to contract with you to get that transport expertise taken care of. There are no existing ties between these group of people whatsoever. What foundation would you lay to create the best possible circumstances for this high pressure moment to go well? So we've had to kind of deal with uh, that to some extent. It's really difficult because, again, in the UK, at the very least, all, a lot of this is already predetermined by the way the regions are kind of laid out. So like you, all these hospitals, it's a kind of a historical thing. Almost we would, all the hospitals kind of belong to who they belong to. It's really difficult to kind of change the, the lines. But I, I get what you're saying because we've had to, we've taken on a new client that's kind of showing different challenges and it's not something that's completely new. So there is a pre-existing system in place, but trying to build on that, trying to kind of provide the expertise that we need, but at the same time, not compromising the care that we're already providing to the patients in our pre-existing caption area. And it's about understanding what they need and what we need and what we are able to provide to them and what their expectations with us are. So is it that part of the package is, uh, yes, we are transporting patients, but what happens if we can't? Are you able to do that yourself like uh, an emergency time critical transfer is something we'd expect you to do yourself so when i say time critical things sure. like urgent neurosurgical patients they mm-hmm. they are usually transferred by the referring hospitals because we know that it's time critical so they need to get there themselves sure. get the patients there themselves so there is a level of expertise that is already there but it's not something that's allowed to grow unless you get to the circumstances such as this Gotcha. And also like then the other side of it is providing training to this hospital 
so that they can like an outreach of training so that they can better understanding of what we do and and how do you do certain things like how do you manage these particular cases whether it could be like high fidelity sim um doing that kind of outreach training days and even procedures like how to how do you put chest strains in babies like you don't do it often we can bring you the kit and you can have a go like it, it's these kind of things yeah I'm, I'm getting this image of you know sort of a bridge being grown organically from both sides between these two things right and the mm -hmm. the, the unit possessing the expertise the elite unit that does whatever sharing that back and forth with both people to create this like much more synergistic lineup as mm -hmm. opposed to just a more I guess I'd say a cold Didactic. interface. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz it it needs to be a synergistic thing because like we don't we don't live in a bubble like uh -huh. I, it comes back to what we're saying what, what I said about it earlier. There are all the district general hospitals have the level of expertise to manage the patient that should have should being the keyword, but should have the level of expertise to manage the patient in the first instance. Like if you're a preterm baby being born in the a level one, so a, a, a district general, a small, very small district general hospital, then you should be able to stabilize them in the delivery suite because that's just the expectation. Sure. We have that you should be able to do that so you can keep your unit open, if that makes sense. Having basic life support training or advanced pediatric life support training in certain individuals or neonatal life um, support training so that they can manage the circumstances should it crop up is an expectation. But at the same time, we know that if you don't do it often enough, then you're not going to have the skills to be able to manage it. Like if you intubate a patient once a year, how are you like instead sure. once a year going to be that time when this tiny baby is born and you're supposed to do it because no one else can do it? It's a really difficult position to be in and it's a really scary position as well how do we yes. manage that like do we do outreach of training that would be nice but we can't be there all the time to do it so it's just trying to find out like uh, highlighting areas that could be improved and kind of feeding it back so that the training process can be taken up internally so like they can try to manage what they're doing and say actually you guys need to possibly look a bit further into this to manage this further, we can come and help you facilitate that. But it's something that needs to be driven from your team. And if you want longevity of the service, you just need to be able to maintain good relationships with like the, the way you deliver this information is so, so difficult and so important. I have so many more questions about like training these small group teams and I, and I, somehow we are already at the end of our time, which is ridiculous because I feel like we've just started scratching the surface of everything here. <laughs> but I want to give you a chance before we close out and we're like totally going to have to do a round two where we talk mostly about like what goes on in your head and on your team because we didn't even oh, touch gosh, that. Yeah. But I want to give you a chance before we sign off here to issue a challenge to folks listening to this. If they are part of the audience, medical or not medical, and they're listening to this and they're thinking about, okay, how do I apply this in my own life for my own team? What do you want them to try? What do you want them to do differently in their next shift, their next rotation, anything like that? I think like the one thing I want to try is to try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. I think that's the biggest thing I found with being a transport doctor. Before I was, uh, before I did transport during the training, I would be like, Okay, like why didn't they, when they, when I received, when I received these prepackaged infants, so why haven't they done that? They've spent so much time there, but 
But actually, it's really hard environment to be walking into like a strange foreign environment where people don't know how to make up whatever you want them to make up, don't know how to do the things you want them to do. But actually, your point is to get to the, get the patient to a safe space. And this is the safe space. At the same time, on the flip side, being the receiving, like the team that goes out to it, like being kind to the receiving team, because actually they're calling you in a very difficult, like this is a very scary point for them. And just kind of like for me thinking about actually, they look terrified, like, oh, I'd want to be condescending. Sometimes you're not, but like being kind to people, like I don't have to be rude to you to be able to get you to do what I want. I can do that nicely. And it just changes the dynamic of the interaction. Just kind of thinking before you say that thing you don't need to say, if that makes sense. Yes. It, 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 if you've been in that situation, yes, it does make sense. <laughs> Amazing. I don't know whether that's helpful or not, but it's just something that I've kind of taken on board, like just thinking about how people are, uh, why they're, how they are in the position they are and how does that make them feel. And I think that's incredibly like both poignant and very timely as we're about to hit July, which at least in the States is when all of the new doctors start and start their new roles okay. and kick up a level. And so having that, you know, presumption of good intent and kindness is going to go a really long way in this next period of time when folks are just struggling to figure out, you know, not only how to do something complicated, but to distinguish their ass from their elbow in a lot of ways. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's it's such a difficult time. And, you know, these moments of kindness are the things that they're going to remember and perpetuate, Absolutely. hopefully perpetuate. Because we want to make a better society. We don't want to be covering, like just being scattered to speak up in the corner because someone's going to yell at you. That's not the way we should be moving forward. Like we should be treating people like they're adults and that their opinions matter. And yeah, that's basically it. That's me off my soapbox. Sorry. Love it. Trish, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. For Thank you for what you're doing, for sharing your expertise with us about all of these fascinating things. And I... Uh, I think it's the mark of a good podcast when I'm left with much more questions than answers. And I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice. And all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.